Welcome back. Wow, we made it to this point. This is our last week of content. And would you look at that, we're ending with some of the most exciting stuff to talk about. Um, this week is all about crime scene and scientific evidence along with video and photo evidence. So let's start with a quick overview of DNA. I'm going to go a little backwards here. But so DNA, what is it? Well, the term DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It's a thing that has a double helix shape and looks like a twisted ladder that you learned about back in biology classes. And it essentially is our genetic code or sequence that is specific to us, which we get from heredity from our parents. So one, DNA is pretty cool because it truly is specific to individuals. And two, there is, or this is where science meets criminal justice in many ways, as DNA has become the backbone of criminal evidence. However, while we may think of it as infallible, it actually isn't as perfect as we might imagine. First, DNA sequencing was first introduced to the criminal justice investigative process in the 1980s. And when it first came on the scene, it actually couldn't do a fraction of what it can now for identification purposes. We could use DNA to postulate that a perpetrator might have been the criminal by odds that would say that a person is a genetic match of say one in 10,000 people. However, there are roughly 328 million people just in the United States. And remember, we only have 5% of the world's population. So even here in the United States, that could be 32,800 people of 328 million. So it was far from exact. And for that reason, it contributed to many wrongful convictions because of that. And crazily enough, misapplied forensics, which includes faulty DNA, has contributed to about 45% of DNA-based exonerations. Now, again, most of that 45% isn't always DNA-related. It's usually things like hair analysis or faulty ballistic testing. It's those other misapplied forensics. And DNA is actually what has exonerated these people, which is good, but it still showcases the potential infallibility of it as well. Well, or fallibility. And additionally, it all comes down to how much of the DNA and the alleles that we test in many of the cases. And from what we can only draw conclusions that neither include the person as potential suspect or include or exclude them. So exclude is pretty absolute. It means that they cannot be the suspect. However, to include someone just means that they could be the suspect, not that they are. And it all comes down to the statistical measures of accuracy for just how certain we are that the person is included. Again, again, it could be just as bad as our example of one in 10,000, or it could be something like one in 8 billion, which is the world's population estimate. So you'd be good in identifying somebody from that. So a few big takeaways here. One, DNA is not necessarily an exact science as it, maybe you thought it was, but it isn't. There are many variables that determine how accurate it can be. And two, it doesn't always produce an exact answer to our questions of who committed a crime. And all of this leads us to the ethical issue here. And that is that while we tend to think of DNA as the holy grail of scientific knowledge, especially when applied to the criminal justice system, it just isn't necessarily the case. So we can't necessarily rely on it to be just absolute. In addition, our over-reliance on it has caused some degree of a CSI effect where our court system primarily jurors, and again, remember, most people take plea deals and don't get to a jury trial, but stay with me. These individuals, though, that serve on juries expect scientific evidence such as DNA in all kinds of cases that it would never happen. And again, they also assume that it's infallible, and thus many convict people, even though the odds of their involvement might not have been quite as perfect as you thought. 
Okay, so enough with DNA. Let's talk about other faulty scientific and crime scene type of evidence. What about hair follicles, fingerprints, and bite marks? Surely those must be perfect science, right? Right? Wrong again. Research over the years has shown that all of these are also not as accurate as we may have first thought. Hair analysis and bite marks in particular are simply just bad science. Contemporary research consistently finds that they are not statistically able to show who committed a crime. Yet they have and somewhat continue to be introduced as evidence in the court of law. Ethical problem? Heck yes it is. And what about things like latent fingerprints? Clearly we see those in all the movies and shows and shoot, we had to get our fingerprinting done just to get a job. So it must be accurate, right? Right? Hate to burst your bubble again, but no. While fingerprint evidence continues to advance, all of those advancements only show us how inaccurate we have been historically. So while we only looked for 15 matched points, better known as minutiae in the fingerprint world, we found out in about 2004 that people could actually have the same amount of minutiae at that level and that we needed to be looking for more um, because latent fingerprinting typically is looked at with the human eye. And how did we even find that out? Well, it's because we matched a latent fingerprint from a bombing to a man in Portland, Oregon, and tried to convict him before we figured out that we were wrong. And it was the application of science that was essentially wrong. Those doing the latent fingerprint analysis had been trained to look for 15 minutiae. So the technician did his job correctly, but we didn't yet know that our science wasn't absolute. So why do I bring all these examples up of faulty science? Well, because it showcases that even when we think of things in our CJ investigations process to be perfect or infallible, that they most likely aren't. And keep that in mind as we currently use a lot of things that we think are perfect, but we might very well be doing the face palm emoji in 30 years when we advance further and see how inaccurate we were, much like how we're doing now when we look at these faulty scientific evidence pieces that we've used to convict people. Lastly, there's a lot to be said about the use of photo and video-based evidence in the criminal justice system, but both bring us back to concerns about privacy versus security, especially as photos and videos can be taken without consent and may be done in a way of surveillance. We live in a technological era, so just about all of our daily life outside of the home and potentially in it, anyone have a Nest camera, could be captured. And the ethical question that gets raised is whether or not this new technological society needs restrictions on just how much surveillance can be done. Just know that most technology comes with capabilities to track. So things we use every day are already doing this. And just as we track ourselves, the government and police also could be able to. So see the video about surveillance being used by police for examples and be the judge of whether or not you think that further restrictions need to be put into place to use this type of evidence in our criminal justice system. All right, that's all I got for you to cap out an educational and hopefully fun semester. I know it was an odd one, but good job for getting almost to the end. Let's get you to that finish line in the upcoming weeks.